Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 199 of the Bowery Boys, Battle for the Skyline. How tall can it go? Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Uh, with a very unconventional show for our run-up to episode 200. Why is it unconventional, Greg? <laughs> it's, bo- it, it's both high concept and we're recording it outside. We're actually going to be talking about the New York City skyline, or rather how it was created via various laws and changes throughout the past 150 years. Right, because really there are two big laws, one in 1916 and then another in 1961, so nearly 50 years apart. But these laws were responsible for so many of the elements that go into uh, the structures that we walk by every day, that we live in, and that we work in. In this show, we're going to answer some questions like, why are areas of lower Manhattan complete darkened canyons? And why are there huge public plazas when you go to Midtown uh, outside certain tall buildings? Why do older buildings seem kind of graceful and elegant with these setbacks that kind of look like wedding cakes? But newer buildings feel like, you know, like monoliths from 2001 A Space Odyssey. So this is a history of building tall in New York City. And and so then it seemed obvious, right, that if we're talking about these buildings and we're going to be describing these buildings, well, it might just make sense to do this from the streets of New York. So we're starting out today's show down in Lower Manhattan, but we're going to move all over the island. This show is a little wonky in concept, but in one sense, it's probably the biggest idea we've ever recorded. Biggest? I think it's the tallest idea. (laughs) The creation of the New York City skyline. You know, Greg, if we do this show right, I hope that we will change the way that we look at the buildings that we walk by every day. (laughs) So join us as we reconstruct the story of the buildings that changed New York skyline.
Tom, literally situate where we're at, like okay. where we are sitting right now. Uh, describe it for our audience. I think we're sitting in a place that is very familiar to many people listening to the show, for we are in Zuccotti Park. You and I, on this blustery February night, are sitting in a very cold park. Not many people around. Zuccotti Park is in Lower Manhattan. It is bordered by Broadway on its eastern side and between Cedar and Liberty. And it's interesting, uh, you know, you have a reason why we're sitting in Zuccotti Park. Well, we're, we're between three sites that are kind of important to New York height. One of them, of course, being we're in the shadow of One World Trade Center, and that's immediately to the northwest. Now, right next to us to the north is the former headquarters of U.S. Steel, a mm-hmm. very steely building, but that was once the location of the Singer Building in 1908, the tallest building in the world. But the third reason is the particular building over there to the southeast. Mm-hmm. That is the Equitable Building, which will come up in a, um, in just a few minutes and that's to just, why that's important. And that's just kitty corner to where we are. Right. Now, a couple years ago, I did a show about the tallest buildings in New York City. But I wanted to clarify that this is not quite like that show. That was sort of a skyscraper race story, Yes, right? and that was individual buildings. Mm-hmm. We won't even be mentioning some of the buildings in this particular show. This is very macro. This is very high concept. So, Tom, do you know how many skyscrapers are in New York today? A skyscraper being a building that is 40 or more stories. Um, I'm going to guess it's... Is it more than 100? It is. In fact, it's 250 skyscrapers. And that could be changing... That's a lot of floors. It's a lot of floors. By the end of this recording, there might be another one, you know, as things are going. Now, this is something very obvious, but something to keep in mind. Most American cities are just simply not as old as New York City. There's a, a few... Other cities in America that are similarly (laughs) old, but many of the streets downtown trace their paths back to New Amsterdam. These streets were carved into Manhattan Island uh, and had two to three story buildings on either side of them. And these streets were equipped for horse car traffic, you know? Right. So So the same streets here that today have these really tall office buildings. Yeah. Many of them already existed hundreds of years before any of these buildings were built. Yeah, and that actually comes into play later in the story because these buildings are really tall and and the paths in which they line are very, very narrow, or at least were quite narrow when they were first built. New York's success as a port town and a financial center stands in contrast to Manhattan's primary limitation for most of its life, which is physical size, physical space, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a limitation to ex- exactly how much people could build on the island. Of course, you know, like in the early 19th centuries, the city was getting a little bit larger. You know, they knocked away Collect Pond and they built 
past Canal Street, they, all those residential neighborhoods moved northward, right? And so this sent this original center of town, this what we call the financial district today, right around here, slowly became more of a commercial district. Yeah. It was already commercial, of course, but, but sure, the yeah. residences moved north. Right. The the people kind of slowly moved out over the decades. So so then post-revolution, end of the 18th century, this area is becoming increasingly a business district, like around Wall Street even. In fact, I would say Wall Street, you know, being the center of American finance was also the center of American political life back then. So it, it made it kind of the magnet, right? Mm-hmm. Or it made it sort of the centerpiece. But with the construction of City Hall in 1812, you had this development of a proper business district almost from City Hall down to Wall Street and even further down to Bowling Green and to the waterfront. We've spent so many podcasts talking about this area, of course, and all the industries that were situated here, from the newspapers and the publishing, which was up at Park Row, to the shipping industries over in the area of today's South Street Seaport. But in the the context of today's show, though, we're talking about the structures, the buildings. I'm imagining if we're, say, at this point in the early 19th century, we're talking about really small structures. I mean, there are no elevators. No, two to three floor buildings. I mean, you had buildings that were taller, but here's the interesting thing and very funny to think about today. Those top floors, say, in a building that had five floors. Mm-hmm. Now, if there's no elevator to get there, those would have been undesirable floors to right. actually... To Even though they had great views. Wonderful views, but if you had to walk up those stairs every single day, it would have been a little bit of a nuisance. So as you mentioned, of course, this required the invention of the elevator. Right. And we've talked about Elisha Otis, who's the father of the elevator. And how he even debuted his um, his new invention at the Great Crystal Palace exhibition. But I should say that he perfected the elevator. There, there have been many attempts at elevated platforms and this type of thing mm-hmm. uh, before Mr. Otis. The first successful passenger elevator was up in today's area of Soho at Evie Howitt's Emporium, Mm. where you'd go and buy your fine china and silverware. The Emporium actually closed the same year as the creation of the first real skyscraper, or the building that sort of sometimes gets the title of first New York skyscraper. And when was this? Well, 1870, Tom, and this was the Equitable Life Assurance Company building. So it was exactly right over there, Tom. See, they, this current equitable building, this was not that equitable building. Okay, this so a much this is a different... <laughs> yes. The first equitable was a sort of mini-me of this. Oh, yeah, very mini. In fact, it was only 130 feet from the top of the seventh floor. It was 142 feet from the roof. Seven floors and was considered a skyscraper. Yes, back in the day. I mean, it wasn't the tallest building because... Trinity Church, which was across the street, was actually still taller than this particular building. It's just funny today to think 142 feet from the roof. And then we look over here to the World Trade Center, which is 1,776 feet. So it would have been a very small, shrimpy building in comparison today. But back then, it was a very impressive building and lucrative for the equitable. To quote the author M. Christine Boyer, quote, The elevator immediately enabled the fifth floor to be as commercially successful as the second floor. Mm-hmm. Right? So there was so like... for a- landlords, this was a big... It was a 
a boom. It was like a new universe. You were opening a third dimension, essentially. You weren't just dealing with ground floor or just two or three floor buildings. You could now feasibly build right up to the sky. And rent out all of these office spaces, because we're talking about offices. No, this, yeah. The, and although this, of course, would occur also with residences, we're focusing mostly today on commercial buildings but and office applies, buildings. But it applies, right, sure. apartment buildings and hotels, of course. Sure. Now, this brought a boom of construction. Not only did these top floors become more valuable, but in fact, they even became very valuable and highly desired because of the prominence and the views. I mean, the executives always got the top floors, right? Mm. Assisting in this is not just the invention of the elevator, but the development of steel frame construction, which allowed a skeleton frame of right. steel to you know, bear and distribute most of the weight. Beforehand, if you wanted to build larger buildings, you had to have thicker walls on the first floor, and that right. was just impossible after you know, too many floors up. There was a limit to how many floors right. because of that, right? All of these factors contribute to creating a marvelous collection of buildings starting in the late 19th century down here in the financial district. While there would be, of course, early skyscrapers above 14th Street, of course, like One Times Square and the Flatiron Building and the MetLife Tower and buildings like that. For the All most, built in the first decade of the 20th century. Right. For the most part, the biggest concentration of these buildings, of these skyscrapers, was here in the financial district. And they're being constructed basically with very little regulation. It wasn't necessarily a developer's wild west at this time. I mean, there were definitely many kind of building laws, like tenement laws, for instance. Right. Various, Regulations. They called them tenement house laws that were... Uh, for like fire escapes, the required number of windows, and even you know in certain areas, even the width of the streets. But mm -hmm. most of those were for just residential. But now flash forward to the early 1910s, and people just assumed that life would be lived in a huge latticework of skyscrapers uh, that were connected with roadways, right? I mean, you've seen these like these drawings, uh, these turn-of-the-century drawings of, of walkways that connect skyscrapers and roadways atop other roadways, these endless miles of skyscrapers, This right? modern vision of the city. But wait, you're saying that there were certain buildings that were popping up, these new skyscrapers that were kind of racing each other with very little regulation, and then artists who were kind of taking off and stoking the popular imagination about where this could all be going. Were people really seriously concerned about this? Oh, certainly. I mean, even the developers of the skyscrapers themselves were kind of identifying the problem. In 1912, Theodore Starrett, who was one of the major developers of skyscrapers at this time, was quoted in the New York Sun as saying, quote, the skyscraper is a crime to its neighbors. It is the worst monopolist there is. It is, if you will excuse the directness of the expression, a hog. <laughs> it has... It is, in fact, a great predatory force wielding a huge bludgeon and making unproductive the country around it, mm -hmm. unquote. So that articulates the problem surrounding the unregulated right. skyscraper, right? So the context for that particular quote is he was talking about two buildings that were rising at the financial district that sent a shiver through, through people who were afraid that skyscrapers were taking over their city. The first and perhaps more beloved of those buildings is a little bit north of here, completed in 1913, the Woolworth Building at uh -huh. 792 feet, which would at that time would have been standing over City Hall 
and the post office, the city hall post office at the time, mm-hmm. but it would have had some open space presented to it. It's a building that from the sidewalk, you look up and it shoots right to the very top, right? right? That there's Straight no, yep. that there's no variance, right? Mm-hmm. That's no, there's none of those like clever little like. There are no setbacks, setbacks no. which we'll talk about in a second. Now, the second more concerning building to people back in the day was the building that we are sitting very close to right now, the Equitable Life Assurance Building. Now, the original building, the first skyscraper, remember that story? Mm-hmm. It burnt down in a spectacular fire. Uh, on January 9th, 1912. Now, on that same lot, they decided to build, of course, a, a replacement headquarters, a newer, larger, and bulkier building, 40 floors. It wouldn't be the tallest building, but it was the largest office building in the world due to the bulk of the building, for it filled the entire block, as you can see. So this is the, this is the building we're looking at yes, right here. This is it. 40 floors and built right up to the lot line. Right. And what's the especially problematic is we're seeing it here from Broadway, but mm-hmm. it's surrounded by three very narrow streets, Cedar, Nassau, and Pine. So it cast this extraordinary shadow during the day, a huge, massive shadow, plunging this part of the financial district into darkness, this perpetual night. So this building often gets vilified today, but a lot of uh, city planners, a lot of politicians at this time had already envisioned a new law, a zoning law that would kind of combat this kind of construction while still promoting the growth of the city. And it wasn't just the light, but it was also uh, the fresh air that it would give. And then there's also the case of the quality of life in surrounding buildings, because when life was made more miserable for the tenants in surrounding buildings, vacancies would rise in those buildings. Driving down the occupancy rate in surrounding buildings is not a good thing for a lot of people. It's not a good thing for landlords, and it's not good for the city either because they're losing tax money if there, are, if there aren't that many tenants in the buildings. And quite frankly, why would, you, why would you even bother building a handsome building, as the Equitable is a handsome building, if they're all just stacked right next to each other and you can, can't really even enjoy them? Right. The big zoning law that we're talking about was passed in 1916. That was called the Building Zone Resolution. And this law is notable because it did three distinct things. It created districts for development. These were residential, industrial, and unregulated. It set limits on the height of the buildings, and that's the part that famously allows for these setbacks Mm -hmm. we're talking about. And it mandated minimums for light and air and size of courtyards and things like that. So this law was a powerhouse. It transformed the way that the city would construct skyscrapers and any tall building until the end of the 1950s. So let's back up a little bit to, I think, the, the part of the zoning law that people are most familiar with, right. which is the setback. Yes. Describe that a little bit more and how it, and how it kind of affected and what the, what the purpose of the setback was. Well, <laughs> I think it makes more sense to get out of Zuccotti Park uh-huh. where we're freezing and there's somebody walking around with a lightsaber. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I think I don't, it's a bit of performance art. Oh, the Force Awakens. So let's depart, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> let's go up to a place where it's very easy, an iconic structure that exhibits setbacks like no other, the Empire State Building. Oh, the most famous setbacks. Let's go. Let's grab a cab.
So we have now resituated ourselves in the shadow. <laughs> That's what of, you call it. <laughs> in the shadow of the Empire State Building, we are standing on 33rd Street. It's a little bit louder than our last destination, but for good reason, because Tom, you're about to share some information about the zoning law of 1916, which the Empire State Building exemplifies. Yes, it does. It's a crowning achievement of the zoning law of 1916. We're standing just east of Fifth Avenue, across the street from a Wendy's, (laughs) craning our heads way back to look up at the very top. Uh, It's nighttime, so only the top section of the tower is actually lit right now, and we can see the spire. But from this angle, we're actually not able to see even the top of the building. And the thing I always forget about the Empire State Building is from afar, it looks like that silhouette that you see, mm-hmm. the, the shaft, the tower there, it seems as if it takes up the whole block, right? right? Like it right. has that sort of power that was part of the design of the building. But actually... When you see it close up and when you're, you know, at ground level here, you see that the the first four or five floors here are, in fact... Built at the sidewalk line. Yes, built at the sidewalk line. actually take up so much more space than that tower that you've seen from far away. And that's an important part of this law of 1916. Remember that the law set up these different districts around town, but more pertinent to this show, it set up different height districts. There were five districts in the city, each with its own height limitation. From the most conservative, which was called the one-times district, uh, which meant that the buildings could only be one times the height of the width of the streets. So so it was actually, hmm. yeah, the, the, the width of the street plays into the whole uh, equation here. So that's the one-time district. And on the most liberal side, it's the two-and-a-half times district, where the buildings could only be about two-and-a-half times the width of the streets. Most of the apartment buildings and tenements were in the one-and-a-half-time districts. It also mandated that the buildings that were near the corner were usually able to base their height off of the larger street. Because, look, the the widths of the avenues are much uh, wider than the width of the side street. But clearly, these buildings are more than two-and-a-half times the width of the street. In fact, that would make them quite small in comparison to this. (laughs) Right. That is because of another major detail in this law, setbacks. Depending on the district, for each foot that the building was set back from the streets, it could rise an additional amount. So again, from the most conservative districts, those one-time districts, for every one foot that it was set back from the sidewalk, another two feet could be added in its total height. The most liberal in the two-and-a-half-time district, for every one foot it was set back, five feet could be added Hmm. to the district. So that resulted in these buildings having these tiered constructions, you know, where where they step back. Well, that certainly explains the sort of initial setback here, right? But right. that doesn't... Because we're looking, what, it's like five stories mm-hmm. right right up against the, the sidewalk line. Sure, and then like... it sets back, and there's like another building that's yeah. about 20 or 30 feet back from that. But there's even more setback, but that still doesn't explain this massive tower. That The tower doesn't fit into this equation, and that's because of the very important final detail of this law. And specifically here, I'm referring to item D under section nine of article three. Of <laughs> now, the law. Well, now you're just showing off. Do you have this, do you have this whole document like somewhere I in do. your coat somewhere? Actually, I have it right here. Oh no. Um, the, the item reads, 
quote, if the area of the building is reduced so that above a given level, it covers in the aggregate not more than 25% of the area of the lot, the building above such level shall be accepted from the foregoing provisions of this article. Such portion of the building may be erected to any height. And then it goes on and explains something else. But that's the big point here. They could go as high as they wanted as long as the tower was not more than 25% of the size of the lot. So when you're looking at a building like the Empire State Building and these giant towers that were constructed in accordance with this law, chances are very good that the tower that you're looking at, and in this case, that's what's going on here, the actual tower part... is just 25%. ...of the total lot. Okay. Which meant that in order to make these towers feasible, economically feasible, and to a certain degree, you know, like engineering, to make the engineering feasible, they had to buy up as many lots as possible around to get the biggest possible footprint oh, sure, of this sense. thing, right? So because, th- yeah. because if the resulting tower is only going to be 25% of your lot, you want your lot to be as big as possible. Well, did you bring a tape measure? <laughs> if you brought the zoning law, let's uh, let's let's take out our yeah. our rules, take out our tape. I'm not sure tape. about that first setback, actually. Who did we talk to about this? <laughs> But seriously, this this resulted in a boom of office buildings, apartment towers, hotels that stepped back and then had towers rise from their middles. Think of think of Midtown. Sure. Think of all of these buildings really that were built up until the end of the 1950s, right? From 1916 up to like the end of the 50s. So many of these followed this same construction. You see the front building that hits the sidewalk, the property line, goes up as far as they can and then they step back to a certain distance and then they shoot up again and then it goes in and in and in tiered until it finally hits the tower that shoots up and if you stand back and you look at that tower you'll see that yes in fact that fits about 25% of the lot size. And that's where the building really flies then at that point is when it gets to that tower section. Right and you see this all over Midtown you see it all around Central Park on 5th Avenue Central Park South Central Park West you see these luxury apartment buildings and hotels that follow the same principles. So this was 1916 when the law was passed. Now, of course, a lot of buildings were already being constructed, and they weren't exactly waiting for the zoning law to change their lives. Well, in fact, there was a flurry of construction permits that were being filed right up until the day before uh, this zoning law went into effect. So everyone could take advantage of the unregulated areas, right? The, The developers were literally racing. In fact, the New York Times, the day after the 1916 law was passed, ran an article um, just about the flurry of new permits that were being filed the day before this thing uh, was voted on. It says, quote, plans were filed for new buildings in Manhattan yesterday to cost $22,655,000. They included 26 structures, 19 of which are for business use and seven for new hotels and apartment houses. It is a record for the Manhattan Building Bureau, both in number of plans filed in one day and in cost. With perhaps two or three exceptions, it is safe to say that all were filed to obtain the more favorable regulations of the old building law. But aside from the Empire State Building uh, that was completed in 1931, most of the most iconic office towers in Midtown were constructed in accordance with this law. 
you know, big ones, obviously, the Chrysler building and the General Electric building. And Well, the 1920s was essentially the birth of Midtown Manhattan, Midtown as this business center, and specifically 42nd Street and all the office towers along 42nd Street um, are these classic examples of the zoning law. If you look at the Chrysler building, which opened in 1930, I think until now, when I thought about the building, I just sort of assumed that the tower came straight down to the sidewalk, right? But no, just like the Empire State Building, the tower rises, set way back from the street, and only occupies a fraction of the total lot size. It actually took a few years for this to really spark and inspire great architects, like the idea of this setback, of this wedding cake design. And, you know, it would, of course, be here in the 1920s with with architects like Raymond Hood, who would design buildings like, for instance, the Radiator Building uh, near Bryant Park and the Daily News Building on 42nd Street. And he, he also did the McGraw-Hill Building, which is a little bit further on 8th Avenue in Hell's Kitchen. These are classic buildings defined by this classic adherence to the zoning law, it went from a restriction to an inspiration. Right. And in a way, you could even say that the city was becoming a victim of the success of this zoning law because the city was quickly becoming a city of skyscrapers. It was becoming, in fact, too dense. You know, people were wondering if all of the smaller buildings were going to be gobbled up by these larger developments and if everything else would disappear and the city would just be replaced by a series of skyscrapers next to each other. By a collection of dozens of wedding cakes. (laughs) Sounds tasty, you know, but, (laughs) but after the sugar rush, you can fall into a deep depression. So as early as the 1940s, the city was looking for ways to to change these laws, to make the city more livable. But it would really take a couple more decades for anything to happen. And it wouldn't happen right here in the shadow of the Empire State Building or even along 42nd Street. The location of some of the most innovative architecture of the mid-20th century will be our very next destination. And we'll head there to Park Avenue in the 50s after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So Tom and I have now moved for this very special episode of the Bowery Boys. We've now gone to our third destination that was very critical to the history of zoning laws and the increase of height in Manhattan. That's right. We walked up uh, from the Empire State Building. We walked up, actually, cross over to Madison, walked up that 
through Grand Central Station and now up Park Avenue, we passed many glassy office towers, Greg, some with beautiful plazas and fountains. And we have now arrived here at the plaza, the open public plaza, courtyard, if you want, for the Seagram's building. And we're at the intersection of Park Avenue and 53rd Street and sitting here at the Seagram's and looking over at the Lever House. So these two buildings are very crucial to the history of New York City height. Now, yeah, the Seagram's building, which we're right underneath, is a big black slab, dark brown, black, glassy slab of a building with two fountains uh, out front and a big plaza around it. We're in that plaza right now. And the Lever House across, across Park there to the west side is another glassy office tower, but a kind of greenish hue to that glass. What's interesting is that both of these towers just take up a fraction of the parcel of land that they stand on. Well, I think we need to back up a little bit because we have sort of jumped over architectural styles, which have been the motivation for Mm -hmm. some of the change that I'm about to talk about. Now, Midtown Manhattan, some of that development that we talked about with the setbacks, the Mm -hmm. wedding cake, um, what facilitated that was the Art Deco style. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of the skyscrapers from the late 1920s and 30s are iconic Art Deco buildings, right? So like the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, Rockefeller Center, these are Art Deco. uh Now, by the time you got to the 40s, although it actually started in the late 30s, but in the 40s and 50s and early 60s, we're going to a new style that was referred to by a few names, but most popularly known as the international style. Mm-hmm. So the international style is can be described as glass curtain. Buildings that actually have the materials more readily seen, like the, the exposed steel and, and brick, but mostly glass, mm-hmm. right? So the, the sort of glass curtain effect of a wall of glass. Right. So and and that is, you know, a predominant style in Midtown Manhattan today. That's the international style. For the for the modern buildings. Yes. With this as an architectural style a little bit more in vogue by the 1940s, it runs up against some of these zoning restrictions. And so throughout the decades, throughout the 40s and the 50s, there end up being all these little exceptions and amendments to the zoning law. Actually, Tom, I don't know exactly how many, but I read that over 2,500 amendments by 1960. 2,500? Basic- <laughs> yes. <laughs> so basically turning the zoning law of 1916 into a Swiss cheese essentially, right. right? Because I printed it off. I have it right. It's only like 15 pages long. So I guess with 2,500 amendments, I would not have wanted to print that. No, no, no. But the other big thing, the other big change, of course, as you know, by the 1940s and 50s, thanks in part to gentlemen like Robert Moses, uh, the New York City now became an automobile town or was becoming uh, more friendly to the autom- automobile, perhaps less friendly to pedestrians, but more friendly to the cars. And this um, was something that was happening everywhere, right? Uh, Especially, sure, sure. Not just New uh, York. In Europe, where post-World War II, you know, you had big cities who were rebuilding out of necessity and they were building to accommodate a modern lifestyle, namely the automobile. So thus, streets had to be zoned for automobile parking, for instance, and things like that. So a lot of different changes had to be made to the original zoning law. So perhaps one of the most influential buildings to the eventual change to the zoning law was this building right over here, Tom, the Lever House, built between 1950 and 1952 at 390 Park Avenue is the official address. 
it was built for the soap conglomerate Lever Brothers. Today, mm-hmm. they are part of a bigger company called Unilever, which owns both Axe Body Spray and Hellman's Mayonnaise. <laughs> May the two never cross. <laughs> May the two never cross. But uh, that's because they got bought many, many years ago. So, right. But this building was designed by Gordon Boonshaft and Natalie Dubois of the firm Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. So this glass-towered construction was still built in accordance with those 1916 zoning laws. Believe it or not, but it's just a very clever adaptation. So I believe her. The tower, huh? I <laughs> The tower. So the tower. The the tower itself, of course, could not be more than twenty five percent of the total lot, right. right? But instead of just stacking it up like a wedding cake, they decided to do something a little bit more intriguing here. That seventy five percent, that remaining footprint. Well, they they turned it into. A sort of a mixture of things. First of all, there's this foundational building. I guess it's the first two floors. This takes up the whole footprint, but it has an open plaza in the middle of it. And inside that plaza, it's, you know, people can go and have lunch. It's, they have festive sculptures there. And then in that 25% space, it's an office tower, but it goes straight up. Right. And it's 24 floors. So this was different because it didn't step back at all. They kind of used the same rules, but then they just approached it in very different... Right. And, uh, and they jumps, got very different results, yeah. It jumps straight back to its 25% tower. Now, this building is... I mean, it's a striking building. It's very lovely. And you can imagine what this would have looked like in comparison of other buildings that are on the street right now. So right next to it, Tom, we're looking at this old racket club building. It's across the street right. from the Seagrams. It's, it's west for, to the Seagrams and south of the Lever House. Okay, it's a lovely building, but that is a very old school style building of classic masonry, right? And it's it's five floors, right? Right. So, so was Park Avenue then before these sleek glass office towers were built? There were, I take it, more of these five-story stone constructions. So, I mean, it's hard to see today because everything on the street today is of this of, of this international style. But, in fact, this was the very first building of such design. But, of course, it influenced so many of these buildings throughout the 1950s. To quote the architectural historian Henry Russell Hitchcock in 1961, discussing the sensations of a visitor who might have stumbled upon Park Avenue that year, Quote, if he knew the Park Avenue of the dozen blocks about 46th Street as it was before 1950s, he will hardly recognize the scene of the older landmarks St. Bartholomew's Church, several hotels, the Racket Club, and two skyscrapers, the Rich Tower and the Grand Central Building, today's Hemsley Building. Those survive. But almost without exception, the solid brick and stone blocks of the teens and 20s have been replaced by glazed curtain walls. In several cases, literally so, since the old internal structures have have been retained. So in the 1950s is when a lot of this change happened. Mm -hmm. Curiously, though, there wasn't a change to the zoning law. It was just everyone reinterpreting this old original law added with all these, you know, dozens and hundreds of amendments, right? (laughs) 
the second great landmark here of this street, the building in which we're sitting in front of right now, the Seagram's building in 375 Park Avenue, the official address. And it really was built for the Seagram's company. The, you know, the alcohol. Remember the wine coolers? We could use some of that right now. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want a wine cooler right now. But the building was, uh, was designed for Seagram's by Philip Johnson and Mies van der Rohe. And they included in front of this structure this plaza that we're sitting in right now. Mm-hmm. Even though, and I think that this is interesting, even though it wasn't mandated by the zoning law that the plaza be open to the public, they did. Well, it was the success of such a public plaza that it encouraged people to change the law. So the city came up with a new zoning law in 1961. Now, it's such a huge zoning law of of residences and everything. I'm only going to focus on the office towers. And I'm only going to focus, in fact, on one specific part of the zoning law that I find the most interesting. This must be the most important part of the law. It is the most important part. And my apologies to architects who are listening to this, because I'm simplifying this, and to mathematicians, because I'm about to do a little math here. And the core of the zoning law of 1961 was a concept called the FAR, or the Floor Area Ratio. Very scintillating, these ratios, but it really is the key to buildings constructed in the ni- from 1961 to the 1970s so and 80s. what is this FAR? Can I call it FAR? Call it FAR, yes. Call I'll call it FAR. it FAR. So it's based upon this sort of lever idea. And actually, because I wanted to get it right, so I mm-hmm. literally took this from the nyc.gov site okay. to make sure that I'm getting it. Read so, it to me. So each area of the city was assigned a FAR value, a floor area ratio value. Okay. <laughs> now, so, for instance, an area of town that has a FAR value of 1.0, right? Okay. So, say you own a lot that has 10,000 square feet. It's a pretty nice size lot there, right? You can build a one-story building there that is 10,000 square feet in size, right? Or you can have a two-story building there if the building itself only takes up half the lot, right? Because we have a FAR value of 1.0. Does anything have a 1.0 FAR value? Yeah. Oh, yes. So a two-story building covers half a lot, right? And then a four-story building covers one-fourth of the lot, or 25%. So this floor area ratio Mm -hmm. is multiplied by the lot size, Mm -hmm. right, to determine the maximum amount of floor space that's allowed in the building. Right. So uh, there's there's places that have a FAR value of 10. So you could just build a 10-story building over the entire lot, or if you wanted to create a very, very tall building, you would just make it on a very narrow portion of that lot. But you could and go all the way up. use the rest of the lot for? Well, I guess it also mandated that there'd be some sort of yard space or some open space around that it. There would be open, it would be allotted to open space. And at least in the early days, it would very much look like the what we see here at the Seagram's. It would be open space, outdoor space. So in essence, one way to look at this is really a lot has a certain number of credits that it has a value, right? That that you get to spend in whatever way you want to, right? So you can make a very low building that goes over the whole lot, or you can make a very tall building that rises over a small portion of the lot, but then the rest of the lot is then used for other purposes. Or you could make a combination of the two. In fact, that's what a lot of buildings do today in, in New York, especially these uh, 
1960s, 1970s buildings. So, of course, that's just the basis. I mean, there's, I'm not really going into it very deeply, but only so that you have a certain understanding of what really changed and why buildings were then able to become so much taller. So they threw away these other considerations about the setbacks and the 25% of the lot size go as high as you want thing. And instead they put in this FAR value, Mm -hmm. but they also put height restrictions. So there were actual restrictions on how high the building could go depending on the different districts or the different neighborhoods. And then there were certain ways that developers could increase their FAR value. So you could get a higher... Yes, you could get bonuses, you could get extra credit, extra points, (laughs) and you could build even higher if you threw in little extras. For example, you could increase your FAR by adding plazas, public arcades and passageways, subway entrances, things that would be used by the general public. Bonus points, yes, definitely. One consequence of allowing these extra little bonus points is that in some areas, they could hit that height limit and still have extra... Credits. Have extra credits. They could still build it bigger. Now, Greg, to illustrate the consequence of this law, because we're sitting here right in the plaza of a building that inspired the law, yeah. but, but did not <laughs> come about as a result of the law. So I want to take us, if we wanted, we could walk over to the Trump Tower. No. Not in the moon. That opened in 1983 with 58 floors and a big public gallery and public spaces. Instead, I'd like to walk over to the site of the third Madison Square Garden on 8th Avenue, where from 1986 to 1989, one worldwide plaza was constructed by the developer William Zeckendorf. And that's where we'll wrap up our show. Let's head there now. And so Tom and I have taken our third and final cab ride across We're town. Fancy. Yeah. <laughs> to Hell's Kitchen. And it's hopping at Worldwide Plaza, which is uh, where we're sitting right now. We are sitting in the area where there is a a fountain with four nymphs or goddesses holding (laughs) holding a globe in some sort of abstract fashion. A deconstructed globe. Yeah. And then, of course, there's uh, two restaurants on either side. And then on one side of the plaza, the one facing 8th Avenue, is the office tower. And then behind it, facing 9th Avenue, are two residential buildings. So this development, the Worldwide Plaza development, takes up the entire block uh, between 49th and 50th Streets and between 8th and 9th Avenues. And this is a great example of constructions that took place after the 1961 laws because we have everything here on display. We have a big office tower, and you and I are sitting right now shivering in this wide-open public Mm -hmm. plaza. And it's because of this public plaza and these chairs and tables and even the fountains that they were granted this license to build the tower even taller. Well, if the 1916 law had hundreds, nay thousands of amendments, then certainly the 1961 law must have had an equal number, especially to come up with something that is so strikingly different than the, the Seagram's building. There have been many, many additions and amendments to the law. Reams of paper it would take, Greg, to print those out. I'll mention a few of them right here. In 1965, you could build at an angle not parallel to the street line, which was interesting. That happened at 233 East 37th Street. 
1974, you could get a higher FAR by covering your public use space. So not just creating open air plazas, but now you had an incentive to actually create interior galleries. A result of this 1961 law was that there were a lot of what were called tower in the park constructions where you basically had, you know, just like we saw over on Park Avenue, a big slab building and a public plaza at the base of it. And imagine you see these all over the place, mm-hmm. you know, from the office towers along 6th Avenue in Midtown to uh, just apartment towers that are over on the east side where you have these giant apartment buildings with kind of like a landscaped outdoor garden space at the base of it. But I have to say, even though they, they were designed for the public, they, they don't seem very inviting. That was exactly the point that city planners made in the 1980s when they pushed people away from that kind of tower in the park uh, construction and encouraged construction that actually built right up to the property line again. So those kind of went out of fashion. And in 1982, there was the creation of a special Midtown district where there were now zones, pockets around Midtown, right? It was divided up into different sections depending on whether or not they wanted to stimulate growth, which was the case on the west side, or they wanted to promote the stabilization, which was much of Midtown East, where they already had a lot of office towers, or they wanted to encourage preservation, which was around the theater district in Fifth Avenue's historic buildings. Yeah. So now the floor area ratio was dependent also upon which zone you were in. And So a new kind of math. A new kind of math to A new equation, okay. right. And even more complicated because they created special districts all over the city uh, with special rules. There were 35. There have been 35 special districts created, including each with its own rules that affected how tall buildings could go. Since 1961, there had been, of course, the creation of a landmark preservation organization. Right. And so there were all these now historic districts that didn't exist in 1961. So it sounds to me that these specialized areas are really being formed around historic districts, right? Right. Or being formed and because right. of the work and because of the awareness that these groups had, had raised about the importance of the historic nature of neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and raising awareness of the way in which new modern constructions were actually kind of destroying some of the old historic character of those neighborhoods. Another example was the theater district zone from 40th up to 57th Street and between 6th and 8th Avenues. That was created in 1997. It designated 25 theaters as protected. Now, it allowed them to sell off their air rights, which meant that developers around them could go higher if they bought the air on the space above those theaters. So basically, the theaters were not able to build any higher. They were selling off that right to the developers around them. And in turn, those developers had a responsibility to promote theater in New York and to give to this fund called the Broadway Initiative. So this is a complex Hmm. new way that zoning is working in New York, and it's actually bringing in all these different factors, all the way down to supporting theater in the theater district. So where we're at right now, this was built in the 1980s, but I I don't remember at least seeing 
these kinds of plazas on the brand new buildings. Like, for instance, all of those big skyscrapers up on 57th Street, for instance. Right. The big skyscrapers are a different story. We'll get to those Mm -hmm. in a second. But most modern residential developments don't work the same way. Many of them don't include these big plaza areas anymore. In fact, new residential high-rises, for the most part, need to be set upon a five to eight story base, right, that touches the property line. So we've kind of gone back to an earlier model um, that's Mm -hmm. more reminiscent of the 1916 law, where the, the front building touches the sidewalk. So so it's a weird kind of throwback, isn't it? Right, because at least the base building, there still may be a tower behind it, right, that that rises way up into the sky. But a base building is going to go right up to the sidewalk and probably will include commercial businesses as well. And maybe also like a gym on the second floor, Mm -hmm. things like that for facilities for the building but we're back now in in a sense in a sort of setback situation so back to those gigantic crazy skyscrapers (laughs) the new ones now i'm assuming it has something to do with air rights their sort of reason for being right right that would have been very key to them being built right now how is this for a plot twist now a developer could buy up the unused height potential of a neighboring or or a nearby building with these new air rights, you could b- literally build over, you could encroach upon their property line. So you see examples of this all over the city where a new modern structure, a tower, zooms up over an old five-story apartment it building. It literally hovers over it. Like it hovers it's, over it, it. It, it squeezes into that physical space right. and in you a think, very weird way. That, yes. <laughs> how is that possible? Well, it's possible because that small building sold off their air rights. But more commonly, a developer will buy off the air rights of surrounding buildings in order to build super tall construction. So collect the air rights from several, from buildings around the neighborhood. (laughs) Collect, collect, shell out serious cash to buy up these air rights. A couple of recent notable examples, the Trump World Tower, 72 floors, which opened over by the UN in 2001, 72 floors. How was that possible? You know, that was way over the limit of what they were permitted to build just according to the typical FAR. Well, they did it because they were able to buy up the air rights from seven adjacent properties in a row, like seven neighboring structures sold off their air rights. And those, when added up, gave the developer that much more height to that building. Another example is that super tall new structure that just opened in 2014, 157, the the -hmm. new development on 57th Street, 73 stories. And that's only possible because the developer, Gary Barnett, bought up enough of the air rights around him from the surrounding buildings. It took him 15 years to, to cobble all of those air rights together. I think a lot of us think it's just a case of a developer buying a piece of land and saying, you know, I'm just going to build as high as I can go. That's not possible because of the height restrictions well, it's that are ne- in it's, place. And it's negotiation with all these other landowners and, of course, like wrangling with the city. And it's certainly not alone. There, there. This is a moment where there's a boom in these 
super tall structures going up. And at the same time, developers in Midtown East are trying to reclassify the entire neighborhood's zone uh, to change what that, you know, what their permittable FAR is in Midtown East so that in the area around uh, Grand Central Station and along Park Avenue, they can build higher than they've been legally able to build up to this point. So could we possibly live in a world one day soon where we have a bunch of super skyscrapers and then a super duper skyscraper <laughs> then moves in to buy their air rights on top of those buildings? It sounds kind of like you're asking the same question that that r- reporter was asking in that um, article that you quoted when we were back downtown in Zuccotti Park. Yeah, right? almost and like that illustration from 1908 where it seemed like we were living in a whole crazy latticework of buildings that were like would never end, right? right? So maybe we're going back to the beginning in more ways than one. We live in strange times. For more on this, I would recommend checking out the Municipal Art Society's website. They have an interactive zoning map of the city that shows you what can be built where and what's protected. Oh, fun. It's really great. It, it may surprise you. It's called the, quote, Accidental Skyline. So you can Google <laughs> Accidental Skyline Municipal Art Society And in the meantime, check out our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have a few examples of the various styles of buildings, pre-zoning laws, between-zoning laws, post-zoning law buildings, (laughs) uh, with all manner of different shapes and sizes of buildings that have uh, lived in New York City, that uh, that have been built in New York City. We also want to take a second to thank our patrons uh, who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. Thank you so much to those who have joined us with their support. You're making it possible for us to put out a new show every two weeks. You can, of course, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram as well. So, Tom, this ends episode 199. So you know what comes up next. I do. And I believe that this setback episode is a setup for the show that we will release in two weeks. So what could that subject be? Well, let your mind wander mm-hmm. upon that. As not too we, far. Not too far. Not too F-A-R. It's not too far off. On that, on that note, we're going to go warm up now. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.